Well, good morning. It's really great to be here. Uh, I haven't been at uh, Brooklyn Zen Center for, I don't know, three years or something like that. Uh, and I do, uh, I was born in Brooklyn and uh, then, uh, you know, my parents fought hard to get out of Brooklyn. Uh, and I lived and I lived here also in the 1970s. Uh, and uh, my daughter lived here recently. Uh, so it's kind of the uh, homeland. Uh, and I always just loved being in New York. New York really shaped me and formed me. And however long I spend in California or anywhere else, uh, the the sights and the uh, atmosphere of New York is uh, is just really deeply in me, even as it shifts and changes, which it which it does. When I I last lived here in the uh, forty years ago, gosh, uh, and. Uh, Still, it's very fresh. Uh, and uh, my friend, uh, Dharma teacher Conan Cardenas, is, is here. And she's the head teacher at Empty Hand Zendo in New Rochelle. Uh, and when I was last in New York, I, I was in New Rochelle. I was there on an sort of interim basis for about six weeks. And I think that was probably the last time I was here as well. Uh, and just loved being out in the city and finding the city a very different place than when I had lived here in the 1970s. Uh, And part of that is because of economic changes, which have probably driven a lot of the poor people out of the city. Uh, That was a process that had begun when I was, even in the 70s when I was living here. Uh, But also, uh, I think, subjectively, my feeling is that the the impact of 9-11, however great that that disaster was, also had a unifying effect in just an underlying feeling of kindness between people and among people and a feeling that uh, to some degree abides, which is not without uh, minimizing other tensions and dynamics uh, within our community, the community here and, and communities everywhere, but uh, a feeling that we are all in it together. And I think that that is the message. So we're coming up on Monday on the observation of uh, observance of uh, Martin Luther King's birthday. Uh, and I think that that is the, in part, the message that Dr. King was communicating uh, for everyone. Uh, this. Uh, 
radical inclusion. Uh, a message, it makes me think of, uh, it's a book by one of my teachers, Robert Aitken Roshi. Uh, one of his last books was uh, The Sayings of Zen Master Raven, which is kind of a allegorical adult children book, if you will, but with kind of animal characters. And in that, uh, uh, someone asks Bear, uh, uh, what is right view? You know, the first step of the Eightfold Path. And Bear answers, we're all in it together, and we don't have a lot of time. And that, I think, is uh, its a compelling response, and it's, it's a true response. Uh, and it's a response that uh, we need to embrace, as uh, Dr. King embraced it, particularly in this week of you know inauguration and regime change, if you will, uh, and uh, you know the fulfillment of uh, uh, Donald Trump's campaign slogan, you know, to make America great again, which is a G R A T E. You know, uh, that's 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 what we're that's what we're having, and we're already seeing it. And the tensions between people, uh, in the pressure of this uh, shift, uh, we are we're very likely to uh, find the social forces and interpersonal forces divisive. I don't know if you're finding that, but we're finding that in, in, in our Zen community already. Uh, and so I want to speak today uh, for time about, uh, from a sermon of Dr. King's called Loving Your Enemies. This is a sermon that he gave at uh, Dexter Avenue uh, uh, sorry. Uh, yes, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, in November of 1957. So pretty early, about uh, a year after the successful conclusion of the Montgomery bus boycott. That was the bus boycott that probably, as you know, was catalyzed by Rosa Parks' refusal to give up her seat in the front of the bus. And it led to a uh, boycott of the, of the Montgomery, Alabama bus system by the black community. That went on for a year. Uh, and in that, there was violence. Uh, Dr. King's home was bombed. People were, people were shot. People's homes were shot up. Uh, and they had to form uh, alternative methods of transportation for thousands of people for a year, which is not easy. Uh, and 
in the end, they came close to bankrupting the, the boycott came close to bankrupting <coughs> the bus system. And also the merchants downtown were, who depended upon, uh, however segregated their stores are, they still depended upon uh, black patronage. And they were in, downtown was in bad shape. And finally, uh, the powers that be caved, which is one of the, uh, the signal moments in the beginning of, uh, in the development, which was already developing, of, of an, a nonviolent, a direct action nonviolent movement uh, against racism and segregation in the South. I did, I just wanted to say I had um, the opportunity to see Dr. King twice. Once uh, in my early high school days at, uh, uh, at a synagogue in Great Neck where he and Ralph Abernathy came and he gave a talk and raised money and it was pretty exciting when you were in I think I was in ninth grade, you know. Uh, and I also was at the March on Washington. Uh, and it's like, I went with all of, we were, we had the kind of political uh, beatnik crowd uh, in in high school. And, uh, and so we all went down to the march. And, you know, I just, I still remember the, the just, cavalcade of buses on the New Jersey Turnpike going into Washington and, and driving through Washington where I had never been before. And everybody, you know, it, it, it was largely an African-American city and everybody was, people were out on their stoops cheering and I had never seen so many people. I don't think I ever saw as many people in one place until Greg and I went to the the celebration of Dr. Ambedkar's uh, uh, conversion uh, in October. There were probably about as many people. And also, uh, similarly, both determined and joyous. Uh, And then the last intersection with Dr. King was not his presence, but his absence uh, when uh, when he was assassinated in April of 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee, that was uh, the event that that touched off uh, kind of the rebellion and uprising of students at Columbia University, uh, which I was attending then, and I took. Barton that, and I lived in the president of the university's office for a week with about 150 other people, which was really not fun. <laughs> it was, you know, it was sort of exciting, but it was not fun. And uh, then we were, you know, beaten and arrested. But Dr. King's assassination was what set all of that in motion. So. One of the things that uh, I think about Dr. King, and you know, he's often been cited as a 
as a prophetic character. Uh, and uh, has Tigan Layton been here? Yeah, so Tigan and I are very good friends. He's a Dharma teacher, also in our lineage. And uh, we, he and I talk about the, there's not a lot of, there's not much emphasis on the prophetic in Buddhism. The prophetic as uh, God speaking through some person, man, woman, uh, as a voice for justice and for righteousness. Uh, in a sense, in, in, in the Buddha's sense, uh, if all beings are Buddha, and if this very body is Buddha, then uh, to my way of thinking, we all embody this prophetic dimension. Uh, but it's not much emphasized in, in the teachings. And what Tigan and I have said is that, and I think like many people in this room, was anyone, was anyone here born into a Buddhist family? One person, yes. So most of us were born into, uh, into Judeo-Christian uh, tradition. And whether we adhere to it or are educated to, into it or not, that is deeply imprinted in, uh, in what we learn in school and what we, what we pick up in the, in the uh, intellectual and social environment. Uh, and so what Tigan and I have felt is that, well, we got the prophetic. Our, our Buddhism, which what you find is that Buddhism everywhere it went has uh, incorporated values, traditions, uh, so long as they were wholesome and in line with, with the Buddha's values, it incorporated those into uh, the Buddha's vision. And I think it's not inappropriate for us to incorporate the prophetic. And so we turn to, we turn to Dr. King. Uh, in the introduction to one of his books, uh, I had glasses. There they are. Uh, it's asked, if, Dr. if King was a prophet, we should ask, what was God trying to tell us? King's message was, in short, to redeem the soul of America and to enjoy the beloved community. The beloved community is Sangha. That's the beloved community. Beloved community is a way of existing uh, on this planet in a harmonious fashion, not in a fashion that... Uh, is absent any kind of conflict, but that resolves its conflicts in a nonviolent, non-retaliatory way. And this is, I feel like, the beloved community is what we're trying to build places like this, but also we need to build it, and we are building it in our communities, in our larger communities, and hopefully in the world, but it's a long way to go. And he said, to build beloved community, we must 
transcend tribe, race, class, and nation and embrace the vision of a world house, of everybody living in this same house and figuring out, uh, you know, like, who gets to put, where, where is my stuff and where's the shared stuff in the refrigerator? You know, uh, issues like that. Those are figures, things we have to figure out about in our house. And then to eradicate globally the triple evils of war, poverty, and racism. Uh, and so I want to, I want to turn to uh, this sermon to give you a taste of it. And I think, uh, I think uh, Ian said there are some copies of it outside. Uh, I don't know that, I don't think there's enough for everyone, but uh, take them until they're gone. And, and this sermon is also available, easily, readily available online, uh, Loving Your Enemies and Martin Luther King. So he begins, I want to turn your attention to this subject, loving your enemies. It's basic to me because it's a part of my philosophical and theological orientation. And then he quotes uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. I think you can also do this because you embrace, however difficult it is, the proposition that all beings are Buddha. So Dr. King says, let me hasten that Jesus was very serious when he gave this command. He wasn't playing. He realized that it's hard to love your enemies. He realized that it's difficult to love those persons who seek to defeat you, those persons who say evil things about you. But he wasn't playing. We have a moral responsibility to seek to discover the meaning of these words and discover how we can live out this command, this message. So then he, he says, we first let us deal with this practical question. How do you go about loving your enemies? I guess the first thing is this. In order to love your enemies, you must begin by analyzing self. I'm sure that seems strange to you that I start out telling you this morning that you love your enemies by, begin, by beginning with a look at self. So this is familiar to us, right? If we've, uh, you know, we're addicted to studying in our lineage uh, Zen Master Dogen. And one of the first things we learn from Dogen's uh, key fascicle, Genjo Koan, uh, is... Uh, these lines. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. 
So in a way, to study the self, to forget the self, means to merge with all selves, in a sense, rather than uh, forget your individual self, the thing that you think is, that I think is me, uh, because that's a, a distortion and a distraction. Rather, to forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things, myriad beings, to be actualized by the wonders of this cup and the cool, sweet water that it contains that is now working its way down my body, that's contained by my body, uh, actualized by that. We are actualized by all the things that we encounter. Uh, And when you're actualized by myriad things, your body and the mind and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. In other words, um, we're all in it together. Not as individuals, in this sense, but in that, in that moment of realization, not as individuals. Uh, and yet, this begins by looking at self. Uh, so it's the individual responsibility that we have to take. And Dogen is really, he's really great on this. I mean, he just, he is, he does not allow you to fall into this kind of mush of we're all one. But he doesn't, uh, he never denies our individual responsibility for the practice. And individual responsibility meaning the whole world depends on me on what I do, because I am the whole world. I am connected to the whole world. So uh, looking at self, which is, which is the you know, sort of fundamental act of our practice uh, of investigating ourself. Uh, and he says, now I'm aware of the fact that some people will not like you, not because of something you've done to them, but they just won't like you. Some people aren't going to like the way you walk. Some people aren't going to like the way you talk. Some people aren't going to like you because your skin is a little brighter than theirs. Others aren't going to like you because your skin is a little darker than theirs. They're going to dislike you, not because of something you've done to them, but because of various jealous reactions and other other factors that are so prevalent in human nature. So he's saying... Yeah, there is an outside. There, there is hostility, rejection that is directed towards us. You know, he's not saying that doesn't happen. But he is saying here, then, but after we're looking at these things, we must face the fact that an individual might dislike us because of something we've done deep down in the past, some personality attribute that we that we possess, something we've done deep down and forgotten about. But it is something that aroused the hate response within the individual. That is why I say, begin with yourself. There might be something within you that arouses the tragic hate response in the other individual. I think this is, this is an incredible thing. 
for him to say in a church in the black community in Montgomery, Alabama in 1957. Uh, and it is so in accord. He doesn't stop there, but it's so in accord with the message of our practice. And it's, I think it's in line with what I was saying about to take complete responsibility for the world that we inhabit. In, in the Lojong, the mindfulness, mind training verses in Tibetan tradition, there's one of the, I think it's verse 11. Uh, it says, fold all blames into one, which is the same thing. Take complete responsibility. I'm very close with a man, you might have seen his books, Jarvis Masters, do people know of him? Uh, he's an African-American man on death row in California, innocent of what he was convicted of. And he's, we've been good friends for 20 years. I see him regularly, talk to him regularly. And uh, uh, he's a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner. When he had his first empowerment, Chagda Tulku Rinpoche came to visit him in San Quentin and uh, what he said to him before he did the ceremony was, do not blame anyone for the circumstance that you find yourself in. This is a very tough teaching. Of course, he, he's, Chagda's not saying, and Dr. King isn't saying that nobody else is responsible. He, he's just asking the question of a dharma position what how is it when you take complete responsibility for your circumstance and this is you know dr king's way i think of looking at the law of karma um and of course we can argue with it about it but he's raising the question. Uh, and then he moves, he expands it onto a global stage. He said, this is true in our international struggle. Uh, we look at the struggle, bet- he said, we look at the struggle between America and Russia. <laughs> this is, uh, the Cold War was going on then, and we have something, some other shit going on now. I don't know, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, uh, Now, certainly, we can never give our allegiance to the Russian way of life, to the communistic way of life, uh, because communism is based on an ethical relativism and metaphysical materialism that no Christian can accept. He said, but in, in spite of all the weaknesses and evils inherent in communism, we must at the same time see the weaknesses and evils within democracy or within the American System. So he's like, this is 1957. He's already laying out an analysis that is global in perspective. It's not about the rights, you know, and life of, of just of black people in the South. It's about the world. And then he says, democracy is the greatest form of government, to my mind, that humans have ever conceived. And the weakness is that we have never practiced it. You know, so uh, 
Isn't it true that we have often taken necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the Trumps? No, no, he said to the classes. <laughs> Isn't it true that we have often in our democracy trampled over individuals and races with iron feet of oppression? Isn't it true that through our Western powers we have perpetuated colonialism and imperialism? This is, this is intense stuff for that time in a public forum. And, you know, ultimately, it caught up with him because this thinking was exactly what led, 10 years later, to him offering an analysis of the Vietnam War. That analysis, when you, listen, when you read his speech at, Riverside, at uh, Riverside Church, you can really hear the voice of Thich Nhat Hanh within his words and the analysis of Thich Nhat Hanh uh, and they were they were close. Um, when he made that speech, he was excoriated and uh, as a fool, as somebody who was by you know by by the New York Times, by all of the pundits and uh, great minds of the time, think he's this guy is out of his depth. He was not out of his depth. He was right in it, walking, you know, like an elephant with his feet on the bottom of the ocean. So I'm aware of the time, which is sort of shortish. Okay. Well, I want to I want to bring out a couple of other points. Uh, he says. I'll condense this. How do you love your enemies? Uh, The first thing, he says, is to investigate itself. The second thing is that uh, you should try to discover the element of good in your enemy. Every time you begin to hate that person, realize that there is some good there. And look at those good points, which balance the bad points. And there's a wonderful rhetorical section here. I just want to read it to you so you get a taste. There's a recalcitrant south of our soul revolting against the north of our soul. There is something within all of us that causes us to cry out with Plato that the human personality is like a charioteer with two headstrong horses, each wanting to go in different directions. There is something within each of us that causes us to cry out with Goethe, there's enough stuff in me to make both a rogue and a gentleman. Even the race that hates you the most has some good in it. And when you come to the point that you look in the face of every person and see deep down within him or her what religion calls the image of God or the image of Buddha, you begin to love that person because there's an element of goodness that he can never slough off. Another way that you love your enemy is that when the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that's the time when you must not do it. There will come a time in many instances when the person who hates you most, the person who has misused you most, the person who has gossiped about you most, uh, 
there'll come a time when you have an opportunity to defeat that person. It's the refusal to defeat any individual. That's what love is. And he's talking about agape. He's talking about what is really the equivalent of metta or maitri, unconditional love. And then he goes into an analysis of love, which uh, I invite you to look at. But he says... It's significant that Jesus does not say, like your enemy. So there's a distinction between love and like. Uh, Like is a sentimental something, an affectionate something. There are a lot of people I find it difficult to like. I don't like what they do to me. I don't like what they say about me and other people. I don't like their attitudes. I don't like some of the things they're doing but love is greater than like. So you refuse to defeat an individual because you have agape in your soul. And here's where you come to the point that you love the individual who does the evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. This is very hard. Uh, And he says... He goes back to a point that you find very clearly in the uh, Dhammapada, the earliest teachings of the Buddha. He moves to the how, from the how to why. Uh, he says, I think the first reason that we should love our enemies is this, that hate for hate only intensifies the existence of hate <coughs> and evil in the universe. That's one of the first verses of the Dhammapada. And then he, he says, I, I really like this. If I hit you, and you hit me, and I hit you back, and you hit me back, and we go on, you see, that, goes, that continues ad infinitum. It never ends. Somebody somewhere must have a little sense, and that's the strong person. The strong person is the person who can cut off the chain of hate, the chain of evil. Somebody must have religion enough and morality enough to cut it off and inject within the very structure of the universe that strong and powerful element of love. So this is, this is really hard. You know, how do we hold that love in our heart? And I'm not even going to start mentioning names because the list will go on and on. Uh, How do we love them for their essential humanity, their Buddha nature, even though there's a distinction between being a Buddha and realizing that you're a Buddha or acting like a Buddha, but in this, he's saying everyone has this capacity, which is very much what Dogen talks about when he says all beings are are Buddha nature. Not that they have it as something that, uh, like a thing, but they are, we, we participate in that. But we don't always know it. And we don't always act in a wholesome way. Uh, how will we do that? How will we do that in the next, in the next period? Uh, And what Dr. King says, 
uh, he talks about redemption. You just keep loving people and keep loving them, even though they're mistreating you. Uh, don't do anything to embarrass them. Just keep loving them and they can't stand it too long. <laughs> They'll react in many ways in the beginning, with bitterness because they're mad that you love them like that, with guilt feelings, and sometimes they'll hate you more at that transition, but just uh, just keep loving them, and by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. So, you know, I want to say, well, yes, but it may not work that way. It may not work out that way. And what I'd like to suggest is sort of, by way of closing, is to give you so how you can work with this, how your love can manifest, which I think is um, it's expressed in a couple of in a pair of verses from uh, the great Buddhist saint Shantideva, uh, who was a an Indian teacher, uh, who actually no it was yeah. Uh, he was an Indian teacher, much studied in the Tibetan tradition, and sometimes we read him. Uh, and so he wrote a book called The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, the Bodhisattva Charyavatara. He says, so he's talking about his enemy. He said, but surely, he, he's asking this question, you know, looking at the reality, he said, surely my enemy is not to be venerated, for he intends to cause me harm. And then he says, but how could patience be practiced if, like doctors, people always strove to do me good? In other words, uh, if everybody was nice to me, I would never learn the bodhisattva, uh, the bodhisattva principle of patience, of kashanti. Uh, and the, you know, the uh, Pali Suttas, there's a verse which says, uh, patience is the dis- is the incinerator of defilements, which is a verse I like. It's the incinerator of defilements. So Shanti David goes on. Thus, since patience acceptance is produced in dependence upon one with a hateful mind. In other words, encountering a person who hates me is the cause uh, for me to practice patience. That person, the one who hates me, should be worthy of veneration, just like the sacred dharma, because he is the cause of patience. So again, this is this is a this is a very it's a challenging teaching, you know, because the circumstances, the uh, the Republican takeover, uh, all of the uh, the violence that we see in our society, <clears throat> racism, sexism. Uh, I would say it's not just the cause of patience. Patience itself is not, uh, is not, it's not a standalone virtue. In the whole system of the, of the paramitas, uh, patience is a critical, is one of, is one of the paramitas, but the paramitas are informed throughout by wisdom. And wisdom 
is the wish for all beings to be free. So you have to have this large view. And along with patience, the next paramita is effort, uh, virya. Uh, so patience is what we put at the root of our determination. And the determination, the purpose of the determination in action is for all beings to be free. And I think that is the vision uh, that also informs the principle of loving your enemies. Uh, And we're going to have a lot of opportunities to practice. (laughs) But you know what? It's... This is nothing new. It's not new. It's, it's always been happening. You know, uh, uh, when in that introduction it talks about Dr. King's uh, mission to redeem America or the soul of America, America, like almost every other place, The history is one of oppression, fear, hatred, blood, as well as some principled ideas. They're always in contention with each other. Uh, So what redeem means, I think, is to acknowledge the history and to recognize that the hist- history is alive right now in each of us. That irrespective of how you frame the notion of karma, I mean, some traditions they frame it as completely an individual thing, carried on from life to life, or uh, in Zen tradition we often talk about uh, rebirth moment by moment, But it's also true that societally we carry a responsibility, we carry a commonality, we carry in various ways privilege and oppression. And so we have to take full responsibility for ourselves, which is what we do when we sit here and we sit upright. But also, the beauty of the form that we have in places like Brooklyn Zen Center and Berkeley Zen Center and any place that has the initials BZC uh, is we sit together. And in that sitting together, we carry our individual practice, but also there's no distinction among us. We are sitting together, and together we are actually supporting each other's practice. We're not sitting in a cave by yourself. You know, we're sitting right next to each other. I, you know, I, lovely. I saw that during this last period of zaza, and this is this is the tradition we've been given. So we have to continue to do this, and recognize we are all in this together. And recognize that the practice of open, upright sitting and open, upright mind 
is what we're learning to carry forth into the world. Uh, and one of my one of my <coughs> teachers, uh, Shoto Harada Roshi, uh, often says, "Well, the purpose of Zen is to help people, and it's not just to help me. It's the purpose is to, in a sense, it's salvific. It's to save the world. And so, I encourage you to continue your practice here." And also use this as a safe place to talk, investigate, and then to carry not that not the practice as you know some kind of smelly righteousness or Buddhism, but carry what you have learned about being open and upright and straightforward and brave into the world. And uh, we'll do this together. So we're in this together. You have good friends here and a wonderful place to practice and uh, just keep on doing it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.